Hi, this is Shauna. Before we get to today's guest, I want to take a minute to learn more about you, the listener. We've put together a short survey at fueltalent.com slash podcast to gather information on who's listening and to give you a chance to make suggestions and comments about the show. I want What Fuels You to be a great resource for you and your interests, and I hope these interviews give you practical advice along with inspiration for your career and life. Help us continue to serve you better by going to fueltalent.com slash podcast. Thank you so much. Now let's start today's show. Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Gaurav Oberoi. Gaurav is the CEO and co-founder of Lexion. He started his career as an engineer at Amazon before moving on to found and sell two startups, Bill Monk and Precision Polling, and build a $20 million ARR business from $0 as a VP of product at SurveyMonkey. Gaurav co-founded Lexion as the first entrepreneur in residence at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. He thrives on building products that customers love with diverse teams that enjoy working together. Welcome, Gaurav. So good to see you. Thank you for joining. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here, Shauna. Awesome. Okay. We're starting with some rapid fire. Game night or movie night? Oh, game night. Easily. <laughs> I knew <laughs> that big... because I read about you. I know you're like, your brother's a gamer or you were a gamer, right? We, 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 me and my whole family, we've, we've been into board games forever. I mean, we have, we get so into it that we'll like, when we have scores written down, like when we're playing hearts, we will like stick them on the refrigerator and brag about them. Oh, for days I ahead. love like, that. It is, it is Your intense. family, like your kids, I'm guessing you have kids. Well, I'm talking about my mom and dad in that case. Oh, I love uh, that. But, but it's transferred now over to our family. So, you know, my, my wife and my son, I have one eight-year-old boy. We love game night too. That's so fun. It's good. It keeps keeps you close and keeps your brain, yeah. you know, but running. I do like, you know, I do like my share of video games, so I don't get as much to do. And mostly today, that's about spending time with my son. But yeah, games, I'm sure I'm all over that. So are you an early bird or a night owl? Oh, night owl. I always have been. I've tried so many times to be an early bird. It is not my thing. I am very productive late in the evening. Are you doing the like, I don't get much sleep thing? No, no, I'm not. I, I try to regulate. So, you know, as much of a night owl as I am, I, I try to get into bed by 10, 1030 and, you know, be asleep at a reasonable hour and wake up in the morning just because oh, yeah. it's impossible for life to function without adjusting to that. But given the choice, I would like to work yeah. you know, and, and be up later. Yeah. Oh, I'm the same way. Although lately I've been falling asleep early. Okay. So what is your like a pet peeve of yours? Oh, 
<laughs> you're such a positive guy. Oh you know, my gosh. That you're like a high energy, positive guy. I'm like, you feel bad saying this, but we all have pet peeves. <laughs> oh my God. I have all sorts of pet peeves. Anytime we're talking about a project or, or a task or something, it's a pet peeve of mine. If it's unclear who owns it, like one person has to own it. If one person, we can't point to any one of us and say, who's carrying the ball. We should just all understand the ball's going to drop. And yeah. so that I'd say that's another pet peeve of mine. Isn't that kind of an Amazon thing though, that like, if you are leaving a meeting that you kind of have action steps, leaving that meeting, which is a I, great practice. It is. I think it is definitely an Amazon thing. And early in my career, I was lucky to spend time at Amazon and learn some great habits. I don't know if I was there long enough to have these ingrained, but, I, but they definitely made a ton of sense and were things that I've carried since. Yeah. I've had a lot of people who are ex-Amazonians on the podcast and just obviously friends being from Seattle and living here. And there are some really good nuggets coming out of that company. Although we all have our opinions, it's there are some great fundamental lessons, I think. Okay, what is your favorite cuisine? Are you a foodie? You know, much to the chagrin of a lot of my family who are foodies, food is a big part of Indian culture. And, you know, everybody in my family loves food, loves talking about food. I am more of a food as fuel type person. Yeah, like a balance me. bar. I always, I'm <laughs> a little bit the same way. I'm like, just yeah. get me through. Yeah. Not to say I don't love a great meal, but, you know, favorite cuisine. Gosh, or there's so like, many. breakfast, many. lunch, or dinner, your favorite meal. Oh, also hard. You can tell that I have very few opinions on food. You're so lucky. I'm like, that's good. You're going to stay in shape. <laughs> well, I do like drinking an IPA, and I think that's what ruins yeah. all of my, so my... That could be your favorite meal, your IPA. There we go. The beer the beer belly creator. The beer with some potato chips, maybe. That's the favorite <laughs> meal. I love it. What three words would would you use to describe your management style? I like to manage where people have very clear expectations and now they are in and now and as owners, I expect them to deliver on those expectations, which which means that I like people to take ownership and be autonomous and for us to have the interface of what a success look like. Now, you know, please go figure it out and make it happen and tell me how I can help. But I want you to be driving this part of the car or the fleet or whatever, whatever analogy we want to use. So that's definitely part of it. I am very transparent in the good and the bad. I will happily share with the team, hey, this is totally not working. We need to figure this out. Here's why, why I think what's going on. Maybe it's some part of our strategy. Maybe it's some part of our execution. Whatever it is, being clear and open about these problems means that we can have very good shared context and operate as a team in fixing them. And then, you know, I... I like to have a culture that is, how do I put this? A culture that is really focused on, on thinking about our jobs as part of what we do in our lives, not the only thing we do. It's a marathon building a startup. It's not like many 60-week sprints. They, you just won't make it. And so for me, it's about you know come into work, be present, be highly engaged, give it your best, and then go home and have a life and come back to work, recharge the next day. And, and so I like to make sure we have some of that balance in our organization. And for me, you know, it's very personal. It comes from having a young child and I love spending time with my son and my family and participating in all the things that, that are going to happen in his life. 
And that wouldn't happen if I didn't set the example of, you know, work is one of the things I do. It's not the only thing I do. I love that. And I'm like, for the listeners out there, if anybody wants to work at Lexion, I'm like, that is unique to articulate it and to not just say it, but live it. I've been in recruiting, like you and I have discussed this, but like 30 years, I've interviewed a lot of CEOs. I've talked to a lot of companies and I really appreciate that. But I also appreciate that you say, leave it all on the field or leave it all on the mat, whatever you want to say, like be mm-hmm. present when you are there, because that's also really hard. And I find, especially after the pandemic with the whole, like, mm-hmm. you know, change of people's perception of work. Which I think comes back to number one. If it's, if we've clearly articulated what needs to get done, what success looks like, now we can separate, go do it and come back and talk about results without worrying about, well, you know, were you working during these hours or were you, you know, attending a baseball game or whatever? It's like, I look, I don't care. Make sure your team knows. Yeah, get it done. Available, make, get it done and how you need to get it done. And yeah, of course you need to have a life. We all do. So do that too. If you could be famous for something, what would it be? When I was a kid, the thing I really wanted to do, I was like many kids, I was fascinated with space, but I, I got glasses pretty early on. So I had looked up what it takes to be an astronaut and realized without perfect vision, that was out of, out of the question. So being an astronomer, a, as I called it as a kid, a space scientist was, was what I really admired. And when I when I look at you know the most famous people in history, the people that are the most inspiring to me are scientists and engineers, and that's this probably has to do with my education and upbringing. So being famous for inventing something that profoundly changes the course of humanity, I would I would love to do that. Yeah, well, it's not too late. Maybe it's not too late. Still working maybe, on it. Maybe it's gonna happen. <laughs> Lexion's pretty cool and some of your other companies, but yeah. Okay. So what are you currently watching, listening to, or reading that you recommend? Oh, hmm. So watching my, I have, I have my, you know, sort of binge, binge show that I will watch with my wife and occasionally my son, though he complains and it's Top Chef. We're, we're making our way through old Top Chef seasons so I love the sort of reality TV transposed with, you know, cooking things like, oh, that was insufficiently sauteed on the outside. And there's the, yeah. the dramatic music. It's hilarious to me. And I love it. And, and you know, not being a foodie, that makes it even funnier. That, that's well, that's why I'm like, this is ironic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Top Chef is the show. Listening to, you know, we, we as a family take a lot of advantage of living in the Pacific Northwest and going on bike rides and hiking, which means driving to places. And so we listen to podcasts together in the car and we listen to kid-friendly ones. Brains On is a fantastic kids podcast. I would highly recommend it. We, we're, I'm, I'm hooked to that podcast along with my son. And then reading, I like to read for pleasure. I read a lot of science fiction. More recently, I've been reading nonfiction books about explorers early in the 1900s and even further back. I just I just finished reading a book called The River of Darkness. It's about conquistadors in the 1500s oh, after, wow. after taking over Peru. We're like, hey, we're going to find El Dorado, the city of gold. And it was a disastrous expedition. But it led me- This is all stuff I do not read about. I could learn a yeah. lot from you. I'm like, wait, what? It's like over my head. 
it all it's it's actually a kick of these books that I've been on for about a year and a half now. It started with reading a book called The Lost City of the Monkey God about a 2017 expedition using lidar over the Honduras rainforest that discovered these ruins. Oh and then gosh. it led me down this path of a whole bunch of explorer books, Endurance, The Lost City of Z, etc. And now yeah. How fun. Yeah, it's been I love so tell me, tell me about like little kid Gaurav. You just talked about wanting to be an astronaut and having glasses. And that's all I know so far. Where are you from? And yeah. what was your childhood like? Where did you grow up? I had a wonderful childhood that, you know, I, I think we, I got a lot of privileges as a kid. I was born in Bhopal, India, which, which is famously known for I think what is the worst industrial disaster in human history? I think Chernobyl is second. It was the Union Carbide incident. There was a mm. chemical plant that leaked a gas and killed thousands of people overnight in their sleep. We had left Bhopal by that time and it was a different part of town. But anyways, born in Bhopal, India, lived in a lot of different parts of the world because my dad got a job at Schlumberger, an oil field services oh, company. Oh, yeah. And so we lived, I lived in Abu Dhabi from age three to six, in Hong Kong from six to seven, in Singapore from seven to 13, Dubai, 13 to 16. And then I moved to Houston at age 16, finished junior and senior year of high school, went to Rice in Houston, worked there for about a year and a half, and then moved to Seattle. And I've been here since. Oh my gosh. I need to like back that. <laughs> yeah. We're back in that car back. Okay, wait. Yes. That's incredible. How do you think that diversity of cultures and diversity of, you know, having to be the new kid shaped you? Like, were you good at it or have you gotten good at it over time? Just like meeting new people? I I never, I don't remember ever struggling with it. So it came pretty naturally to me. And I think I've always been a very curious person. And I think that is a good way to make friendships. People, you know, yes. want to want to know about. And there's a lot to be curious about when you're moving to different countries and meeting people from all over the world. A lot of my classmates, like me, had either had parents that worked in multinational companies or in, in the diplomatic corps. So they they were used to moving around every three or four years. Wow. Or there were, you know, some kids that came from wealthy families because these were private schools that, that we ended up going to. So a really interesting mix of middle class families that are, you know, working hard there, loving it. And then and then also some like ultra wealthy, you know, industrial magnate type type. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you have a brother. Do you have other siblings? I just have one brother. He's seven years younger to me and he works in tech as well. Yeah, I read about that. <laughs> and we love fun. geeking out yes you guys geek out together Where oh endlessly live? he lives in brooklyn new york nice and he he has a as a wonderful for the last couple of years has started a wonderful consulting practice as an interim cto and gets has more work than he can turn away he works for a, a lot of different vcs refer their portfolio companies to him and his career has been he went to stanford worked at cloudera worked in you know was VP of engineering for Harry's. You can tell I'm very oh, proud wow. of my little brother. We've always had a wonderful yes. relationship and, and That's still- That's awesome. That's awesome. So are you more like your mom or your dad? And I have a lot of friends who are from India and there's also, I need to go and visit because there's always discussion about like this pride of like where people are from mm -hmm. originally. Mm -hmm. It seems like there's a discussion about the food. And uh -huh. so yeah. how does that, does that resonate for you? You know, it it 
It doesn't, it doesn't. It does in the sense that I'm hyper aware of it. And it is a big part of Indian culture because the regions in India are very different. It's not like, yes. it's not like going from Washington to Idaho to, I guess, to Louisiana. It does start to change, you know? So we have variations here in the States, but it's it's stronger in India because the language can be different. The diff, the pantheon of Hindu gods, the subset that you worship in a region could be different. The food is very different and the songs, the the culture, and yet there's a common thread through it all. So I can, you know, the closer people are together, the more they point out each other's differences. So I can, mm. I can absolutely appreciate that, you know, regions within India have all this pride and rivalry. My parents yes. came from the same part of India, so there was no sort of rivalry there. And I am I'm definitely more like my dad than my mom, but I have huge elements. My dad is a lot more introverted than my mom is in some ways. But and and you know, I'm certainly I certainly got some of her attributes there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, with my wife, we come from different regions of India. So I come from North India and she's from South India. And at home, both of us speak our native tongues, but they're completely different languages without even a shared linguistic root. That's interesting. And so would your friends, I guess, where were you? And I I don't know why I referenced fifth grade. It seems like it's a pivotal time for people. Like fifth grade friends, would they be surprised? Was that Abu Dhabi? Singapore, actually. I think that was Singapore. Okay. So Singapore, Abu Dhabi time, would your friends be surprised to hear that you're a tech founder CEO? No, not even close. A doctor? Like, no, that's that's always been the vibes. It's, I think it's right. It's around when I was nine or 10 that I really got into computers big time. Again, because my dad worked in IT. He ran the, the IT departments and built out these data centers for these big multinationals. We always had access to incredible technology at home. We, you know, I had a XT machine. And I remember back in like 1988, he would go off on a, a business trip to their headquarters in Paris and he had given my mom and me instructions on how to log in, use the modem, call the local office so that we could then, you know, have a chat interface without paying crazy long distance fees while he was on these business trips. Yeah. So you're young, you're already like dabbling. I love it. Already dabbling. Awesome. It's, it's actually how I really got into wanting to do this. It was we because we had this technology, my dad was like, you know, it all started with games and I would be playing computer games. And I'd run out of disk space and be like, what did, what do I, what happened? What do I do now? And my dad would never be like, just do this. Or he would never just do it himself. He'd be like, well, you see, you know, a computer is like a library and a, each book is like a program and your desk is your working memory. And you take the books out and da, 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 da. And I'd be like, ah, oh, this is great. Like, so what do I do now? And then he, he would give me this sort of theory and practice and eventually gave me a programming book that was really great for beginners. And I would type in the programs. It was GW Basic, write, you know, initially just copy and paste them and eventually modify them. And eventually I started making my own games with my friends in them. And I would copy these games onto the, you know, five inch floppies and bring them to school or bring them to their house and play with them. And like, they loved it. And that really got me hooked. That sort of dopamine hit of, I made something cool and somebody I, I, you know, respect and love, a friend of mine, thinks it's so cool. Oh my God, I want to do more of this. And, yeah, and that, that got me started. Love that. Very cool. And so 
when you guys moved to Houston, was that culture shock or was that like, where does Houston fall into the, like, I feel like 100% authentically connected in like myself and, you know, where does Houston fit for you? Cause obviously you stayed, you went to Rice University. I'm curious yeah. how you chose Rice. Yeah. Houston was, you know, it was culture shock in, in a way that I hadn't anticipated. I had going to international schools been exposed to uh, you know, a lot, a lot more British culture, I would say, because they were British based, but also a lot of American culture through TV, which is an amazing cultural export. And so I wasn't too shocked or surprised by how things worked. What I was more surprised by was the vastness of Houston and the overall ugliness of Houston. Sorry, Houstonites. Houston, on, on the plus side, Houston is a People are incredibly warm in Houston. It's a very cosmopolitan city with a huge economic engine. There's a lot of good things going for it, but man, was it an ugly city. And that kind of stuck out to me. <laughs> I've never been to Singapore. I've never been to Abu Dhabi. I haven't, I have things in my mind of what I would expect, but I know Singapore is beautiful. It's beautiful. It's, it's one of the most futuristic cities. It always has been. It's a remarkable thing to even study how their government works. I love, I used to subscribe to The Economist many years ago when I had time to read it. And I loved the reading the back pages where they had all these job openings for these incredible roles. But Singapore, the Singaporean government would always have job openings in there. And what really struck me is that they pay market rate for you know, senior government employees. So if, if you're going to hire an executive and pay them a million dollars in private sector, the Singaporean government's like, we're going to pay the same in public sector. As so they no should. I've always thought that was weird. Like, why aren't teachers getting paid and government officials? Like, yeah, I, I've always been confused by that. I think that makes sense. Keeps so corruption low. Yeah. <laughs> corruption <laughs> low. Tell me about Rice and was that the right choice for you? How did you decide to go there? Where else yeah. were you looking? I applied to a lot of different schools. My final choices came down to going to a few really, really great schools. I, and finally, I narrowed it down to Columbia, UPenn, or Rice. And I we visited all these schools. I, and I in every school, I set up time with both the, the career department as well as a one-on-one -on -one with a computer science professor. And I think he... Columbia, I ruled out because one, I knew that living in Manhattan, I probably wouldn't get anything done. It was just such an exciting place. And the second was the professors there, like, just told me straight up. They're like, look, if you really want to build tech, this may not be the right school. But if you want to work on Wall Street, you'll make a lot of money and get to go, you know, do tech stuff on Wall Street. I was like, yeah, I don't know about that. UPenn actually seemed like a very, very strong school, great engineering school. Didn't love the city as much. Mm -hmm. And then the biggest appeal for Rice was I would get to be close to my family, though my parents will tell you that I never called them and they had to chase me down. <laughs> but I do, I do really, family has been a big constant in my life and a big part of my life. And yeah. being close to them was a big plus. And it's a great school. It had a wonderful computer science department, which is what I really cared about. And it yeah. was a small school. And my experience growing up had been going to smaller schools in general. So that kind of fit my personality. So you were computer science. Did you think that you wanted to like go on and, you know, you were obviously an engineer, but when you were thinking about kind of what do you want to be when you get older, yeah. what was the vision at that time? You know, for a long time, it always has been to go and start my own business. And it's something my parents actually 
talk to me about when I was younger, even a teenager, they're like, look, you can go do anything. You could be one of these people starting these amazing companies and you love building stuff and that's what they're doing. So, you know, maybe there's something you can learn from them. I was very inspired by Bill Gates as a young child and kind of oh, nice. And so, so, you know, I knew that's what I wanted to do. I didn't quite know how to do it as an undergrad I actually did a bunch of research with professors and almost went, almost went to grad school. In fact, I, my professor who I'd been doing research with, we published a paper a year after I'd graduated while I was working, we were still doing it. And he was like, dude, what are you doing with your life? Like, why are you working at this, you know, energy consulting firm in Houston? Why don't you come and do research with me? And I was like, oh, okay, well, maybe. And I eventually applied, got in, went to the orientation and then eventually was like, this is not right for me. And I moved to Seattle to work for Amazon. Yeah. How did the Amazon opportunity come? Did you apply or did they recruit you? And what was the interview process like? I applied, you know, at that time, this is a, a funny story. I was sort of trying to figure out what I do next in life. And my dad was like, hey, you got to take the bull by the horns. You can't let things happen to you. It's cool that your professor is offering for you to come and, you know, be his PhD student without you having to take the GRE or do all that stuff. Like that's a great vote of confidence and it's awesome, but it's happened to you. You didn't choose it. And if you're going to choose it, then do it right. Go apply to all the best schools, you know, if that's what you want to do. And maybe you'll still come back and work for Peter. That's fantastic who's amazing. advice. Yeah. He's like, you're doing it. You should be, you know, there's the running towards something, running away from something or letting the waves just carry you. And he's like, you need to run towards things. You need to have a plan and on what you want to do. And so, you know, I chatted with him and he's like, what do you want to do? I was like, you know, I really want to build things. I want to get back to that original plan. And what's exciting right now is large scale distributed computing. And he's like, cool, we'll go make a list of the companies that are doing the kind of work you think is great and then apply to them. And I was like, that's really cool. It just so happened that I was also had just started dating a girl who was in Houston for a year after graduating from Berkeley as part of a rotation program that Microsoft was doing. She was working for Microsoft and then was moving to corporate in Seattle. And, and you know, we'd been dating for a few months and I was like, well, you're going to move. This is probably going to be over. But we were getting along really well. And I was trying to make this decision. And I applied to Amazon because it was one of these great companies. And I got the offer and, and I was like, yeah, maybe I'll do this. And maybe I'll keep dating this girl. We're married now. The eight-year-old is, is, nice. you know, our son. Everything worked out. That's so funny. So, I, I mean, it's very unique to work at Amazon and only for a short time and be so young and leave to go become a founder. Yeah. You started Bill Monk. Is that, that's I right. did. Bill Monk. And yes. What was that company? <laughs> what was the idea? And who, what gave you the confidence to go do that? Yeah. So Bill Monk is a service that helps roommates split bills. It is a, a predecessor to what is now a popular app to do this called Splitwise. And, and I know the Splitwise CEO, we've chatted over the years. He, funny story about how eventual Bill Monk's eventual shutdown ended up helping Splitwise raise a round of funding because we recommended that they go over there. But I got the idea from a trip to Europe I had taken with three good college friends where on the plane over, I had brought a moleskin notebook. And on the plane over, I told everybody like, 
can we not like stand at the train station and try to split a bill or at brunch or at dinner? How about, you know, this is our trip diary, right? Ridiculous things in here as they happen. But the last few pages, I'm going to draw a spreadsheet. And if you buy something for the group, just put your name down, what it was, how much, and put, you know, everyone. Or if like, you know, me and Rajiv end up going out or me and Gary go do something, like just write down those two names and we'll and I'll make a giant spreadsheet and we'll do it all in the end. So that's what we did. I made a gigantic spreadsheet. Everybody mailed it around. This was pre-Google Docs. It was like in 03, 04. And, and, you know, a bunch of people after that were like, hey, can I have your spreadsheet? Because I live in a oh, giant room with My all these My friend people. makes that when we travel together. And I'm always like, give me the spreadsheet. We got to do this. That's we got to do this. I love so, that. So I was like, oh, maybe we should turn this into an app. So that was the idea. What gave me the confidence and, and made me leave Amazon was a few things. The 15 months I was at Amazon, I learned an incredible amount because I had these amazing team leads. They were not the managers because I had five different managers in those 15 months as that part of the organization went through a big change. They were splitting out A9 back then, the search engine. And I was you know, one of the teams supporting the search infrastructure. And, and so anyways, I was like, wow, this is chaotic. I had also saved a bunch of money. I didn't, you know, I've never been a big material, materialistic things haven't appealed to me in a big way. So I lived in an apartment on Cap Hill, like loved living there as a young person, had enough disposable income to do the things I wanted to do. None of them were too flashy. And so I'd saved a bunch of money and I was like, oh, I could, I could coast on this for a couple of years. And and then Web 2.0 was a thing. Like Michael Arrington of TechCrunch was writing every article himself. And, you know, it wasn't even a thing yet. And John Cook still worked for the Puget Sound Business Journal. And but there were these companies that were spinning out with a couple, two, three people that were going on to do, you know, make a big splash and have a huge impact. And some of them were also getting great exits. And my buddy, who I met through Amazon, we lived in, we discovered we lived in the same apartment building, became friends. And we're like, look, you know, we should go build this product. It's a product people clearly want. We had done a bunch of research, talked to a lot of people. We're like, it's unclear exactly how we're going to make money. But then how is Delicious, the bookmarking service, making money? And how is, you know, mm. Flickr, the photo service, making money? Or, you know, it's all about getting to scale and and then finding a business model that will match. And we're like, look, we both, I mean, I knew we could build a great product, but even going into it, I was like, it's unclear if we'll build a great business. So let's just be clear. It, the chances exist that in a year we're going to be, you know, broke and going back and getting a job, <laughs> but we'll probably get a way better job. So we're like, that's, that's fine. Like that's a good enough consolation prize. Let's go. And that's what gave me the confidence to go do it. It worked out great for us that in that one year we got tons of usage. We went quote unquote viral amongst all of the intern groups, MBA interns and undergrad interns at all the tech companies. We got invited to speak down at, you know, Google and other places like that. We got tons of international press. I was on BBC World Service Radio talking about social money. And I really understood how to work with journalists and PR. It was really great learning. And then we we got acquired by a company called Obopay that was trying to build Venmo pre-smartphone and loved all the, the users that we had that were young, that had bills that they needed to pay. And so ended well. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. I love that story. This, this is literally, I almost have chills because this is like why I started the podcast, because these are the, the cool stories. So did you, how did you 
you just kind of saved your money. You said you weren't spending a ton of money. Yep. So, and how did you know, I guess, because you're, you're an engineer, different mm-hmm. skill set than a CEO. Mm-hmm. Were you like missing or were you coding early days? Like, oh, how yeah. did you, you're doing all the coding and then eventually you're um, a CEO so, and you hire a CEO? Yeah, how did, how did that happen? So Bill Monk was a two-person startup from start to finish. We didn't hire anybody. We literally did everything. Wow. We, we wrote the code. We did the marketing. We, you know. That's incredible. The, the deal. We did it all. And so it was trial by fire. Yeah. You know, I, I give a lot of credit to my partner in crime, Chuck, who I've done multiple startups with over the years, not Lexion, unfortunately, but Chuck is just fearless. He's like, eh, we'll figure it out, whatever. It can't be that hard. I love it. And and that just gave me a lot of confidence. And we'd just be like, yeah. oh, I don't know how to do this thing. Cool, we'll figure it out. Like, you know, we wanted to keep our costs low in the early days. And we're like, there was no AWS. So you have to go get colo and rent for longer leases. And we're just like, are we really going to do all this? And so, you know, Chuck was like, why don't we just buy some racks and do it in my closet? And so we went on to Craigslist and bought racks and old one U servers and set up a whole data center in our closet or, you know, Hey, we, we need to get some press. Like, how do you write a press briefing? We don't know. Like, let's figure it out. And we did. And we got a bunch of press or we need to file a patent. And I just talked to a lawyer and it's like 20 grand to get started. But I read about provisionals and I bet I could just write one. So I did. And I wrote our provisional patent, which turned into a patent. Like it was this, this mindset, which I really credit Chuck for instilling in me and and showing me how to do. But it was like, eh, it can't be that hard. Like, come on, let's just put our minds to it and get it done. I love it. It's very much like a startup mentality. It's very scrappy. Oftentimes when I'm recruiting, people be like, you know, vet for startup mentality it's almost like how do you what kind of questions are you asking to like make sure that the person is scrappy right and uh, willing to get their hands dirty and and be curious and figure it out interesting so you and then you had another startup that you sold i did yeah so i worked for the acquirer for a little bit and then had didn't know what to do next but had this really cool opportunity turn up through chuck and some of people he'd worked with before who were senior at and Amazon and A9 had gone on to work for Mitch Kapor, who had founded Lotus 123 back in the day and was the company he was working on. So I, I joined them. I worked there for about a year and a half, but really got the itch to do something again. And this time I was like, I think B2B is the way to go. I want to create a revenue generating business from the get-go. I don't want to go get a bunch of users and then figure out how we're going to tie a business model. And so I enacted the same kind of playbook we'd used in the past to find ideas, which is I reach out to a lot of different friends. I ask them a bajillion questions about their job and what hurts them. I try to match it to some technology trend that's new. And then when I get a thread, I build like a very simple, you know, two, three paragraph thesis around it, and then try to call like 20 or 30 people in that industry to validate the thesis and throw it away if it's not working or keep going if it is. And this one came about through talking to a good friend of mine from college, Jesse, who was like, who had been building a career in politics and as a political consultant, as an, as an operative. And he was like, man, polling is super expensive. The Obama campaign showed that you could actually use IVR phone polls effectively. And the American Association of Political Research, who are the pundits and the scientific body in this field, have approved it. 
And he's like, there's some companies that offer this kind of thing and it allows me to sell this unique service, but it's slow and it's painful and here's what's wrong with it. And 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 actually he was like, can you help me buy the, the computers and the, the modems and whatever to get it set up? And that's kind of when I was like, why are you doing this? What's going on? I was like, wait, this doesn't exist in the cloud. You can't just go to a website and create a, a survey yeah. and hit a button. And it didn't. And I was like, oh, maybe, maybe this is a, a business. And, you know, I'd say the biggest thing, the biggest mistake I made, and it's a lesson that I've learned over the years is pick a large market. This is a small market. It's a very, it's a small niche, which also meant that we were able to grow very quickly and capture a lot of the market, but it wasn't, it, it didn't end up being necessarily a huge one. But we ended up building a product called Precision Polling that allowed you to go online and create an IVR phone survey. You know, the, hey, we're thinking of putting bike lanes in Seattle, press one, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. if yes. And sold to a lot of local politics. And for mayor, he lost mayor of Seattle to McGinn was our first campaign that put us on the radar of the local Democrats here in Washington. And we started doing all sorts of campaigns. And I I learned a lot about the world of politics and campaign finance. It was literally like cultural spelunking into a completely different world. Mm -hmm. And we, sure. I remember going to this, this conference, we got, we got some awards. So we went to this conference in Arizona to collect these awards. And uh, at, at check-in, one of the things they give you is a cigar. And I was like, ah, oh, this does not happen at tech conferences. <laughs> That's hilarious. How come when you said it's a small market. It sounds like it's like an unending market, like a huge market. Did I misunderstand what you said? No, I, I think the, the, the thing about it is there's polling itself. If you look at political campaigns, I'm going to get some of these numbers wrong, but like, I don't know, 80% of the budget goes to advertising, maybe 10% mm. goes to administrative and the other 10% like goes to polling. So you can mm. figure out where to put your advertising. And a lot I of the polling is done through voice calls and et cetera the the electronic sort of auto polling is a smaller smaller portion of that and, mm -hmm. and even then you know it's a us restricted thing there are certain laws you have to be careful about you know removing spammers from your platform make sure people aren't breaking those kinds of rules that makes sense and so it it don't get me wrong it's a really nice lifestyle bootstrapped business and we got to profitability and we're paying ourselves a, a decent salary very quickly uh, and which is really my goal it was like i want to create a real business this time using these same things. But again, about a year later, we got some press with, we did some press and the headline I wanted, we got in TechCrunch. I was like, TechCrunch, we only want this headline. And it's precision polling is survey monkey for the phone. And we got that. Oh, headline. And then perfect. of course I get a call from survey monkey that had just been acquired by a private equity firm and was looking to add more and more and more to the platform. And we ended up selling the business, the SurveyMonkey. And I worked there for five and a half years as the company grew from 50 to 700 people. And I learned so, so much there under Dave Goldberg and all the wonderful people that work there. Oh, interesting. Okay. We do a lot of work with, with Qualtrics and I know Survey, Qualtrics. We use Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what a, what an incredibly successful company and you know, something we, something I saw from the inside competing head to head with them over the years. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. So what did you learn through selling to companies? Like, because that's also just a different muscle to flex, like how to understand equity, how to understand value of businesses. And, you know, I guess mm -hmm. you learn, where did you learn all of that? Or were you learning on the job? 
It's all learned on, on the job, literally everything. So much of my who, career. Who do you call when you need something? Like, do you have a kind of personal board of advisors? Like my when dad I'm in this situation, is the first I call these I call. people. Yeah, he sounds incredible. He has been an incredible advisor to me my whole life and, you know, helped me through the negotiation and sale of our first business, helped me figure out who else to go get help from, where he's like, I don't know how this works, but you need to go find... Mm. It's appropriate for you to spend two grand on a lawyer right now. Go, do, you know, go do it. Don't feel yes. bad about that. Um, right. That kind of thing. So he's been my number one advisor throughout all this, and still is, and and is a wonderful support. Over the years, I've found you know friends that I've like Chuck continues to be a wonderful advisor to me. I reach out to him for help. Now, with the stage of the business we're at with Lexion, you know, this is my first venture back business. And today we are a little over 70 people. We've raised 35 million. We've built a real solid business. We haven't blown a lot of cash. We've done it in a really disciplined manner and built a wonderful, healthy growth business. At this stage, I need a lot of pros in my corner to help me figure out how to do this. And, you know, and so I have been, I don't know, I think this is maybe unique. It's not entirely unique, but I really lean on my board, Tim Porter. Yeah, I was going to from... say, Tim, that's so weird. We're like yeah. telepathic right now. I'm like thinking totally. of Tim, right? As you're saying this, <laughs> I'm like, I love Tim. I mean, you know, a, a lot of entrepreneurs, I, I, I hear different things. Some entrepreneurs play it like I do. Others have a maybe slightly more arm's length relationship with their board. Mine is, you know, full transparency and I need your help. And how are we going to figure this out? And it means that I also have to regulate my internal you know, panic or concern because it, I want to just, I want to have the conversation with them like I would with my dad. I want to be able to have it directly, which also means that if I'm like, oh God, this thing isn't working. Oh my God, what are we going to do? That well, it can I need make to you sort look of bad. Yeah. meditate and make sure like, well, you know, Garv, is this really how you feel? Or are you freaking out right now? Like chill out for right. a moment. Now go have yeah. a conversation with someone who's it's actually the whole heart, you. heart and mind combo of like, you know, your heart's palpitating, but if you slow down and get your brain around it, I'm like, okay, use your thinking brain, not your emotional brain. Yeah, exactly. it totally makes sense. So is there a formula for you when you're starting a company as far as setting culture? I know it's a huge priority for you to, you know, mm -hmm. create a great place to work. Have you done it well at your last two companies? And what have you learned that you've brought to Lexion? I, I will say I... In the early days, I I've not been intentional about it because I just think about it as like, I don't know, the company is a baby and talking to it about how to share your toys doesn't matter. Right now you need to feed the baby and like clothe it. Like those things don't matter because we're not beyond the stage of the company. So if mm. we sit around and talk about culture, like cool, cool, bro, but like who's buying the product and is it, you know, do yeah. we have net, do we have, net, market net. Fit do we have sales? Yeah. Right. Do we have, and, and early days, it's literally like product market fit. Have we made a widget that somebody will like die to use and will, yes. will not use it? Well, will not go back to a world where they don't get to use it. So I, I think a lot of it is honestly just lead by example, do the things that you would hope others would see you do and then start doing yourselves. Again, not so not so intentional. It's just work that needs to get done. So let's just go do it. We've always yeah. had a strong written culture, I think. And that's something that I've I've always wanted. Like, if you can't articulate your plan in you know a page of a few bullets and paragraphs, it's unclear if you have a plan, or it's un maybe you have a plan, but it's unclear if you've really thought through. Yeah, maybe too complex too. Yeah, maybe it's complex. Yeah. Maybe it's unrealistic. Maybe you forgot yeah. about this one thing. 
that ends up torpedoing the whole plan. So, you know, th those, I think just acting in ways that then helps the culture grow, that's kind of my early stage philosophy. It's really only now that I'm thinking, holy smokes, I need to spend a lot more time being intentional about culture as the company. Well, I think it's based on the size now, 70 people, series B, like, yeah, early days, I agree. It's like parenting or something, right? You're like, yeah. I'm going to, model behavior instead of tell them and then act a different way like i'm just going to be the be the change you want to see in the world whatever like be the <laughs> right, person right tell tell me because not everybody i mean hopefully i'm guessing i know lexion but it's my business to know lexion and i want to yeah. make sure that everybody listening gets excited because it's such a cool business tell Thank me more you. about the business and about the business model yeah absolutely so lexion we help companies get deals done faster by speeding up the entire contracting process end to end. Now, I know you're thinking, whoa, contracting, whoa, hold on, that's legal. And you know, well, what does that have to do with me? And is this great for my company? I think we, we had this conversation prior to the start of this call, but any operator, anybody who's run a business at, at some scale ends up running into this challenge of, oh gosh, like we're trying to close this deal with a customer why are these contracts stuck in my contracting process for so long? Or, hey, I need to buy this product. And, you know, a bunch of people in my company are buying products, but like, are we still using them? Are they auto renewing? Like, where's this, where's this money going? Like, who's keeping track of this? And you begin to find that as companies grow without putting in tooling to help you with the process of getting these contracts done, you end up with an incredibly slow and efficient backend system and process that ends up really hurting your business. So that's, that is fundamentally the problem we solve. We help you speed up contracting. We, we operate as a SaaS business. We typically sell into, we actually do enter organizations, usually through the legal team, but also increasingly through the sales team. Because in many cases, when we talk to the legal team and say, why are you looking to acquire software? And they start telling us about their jobs. They'll tell us things like, hey, you know, our business is growing, we're hiring more salespeople, but we're not getting headcount and legal. So we need to figure out a way to scale ourselves and change our process so it works. We'll also hear things like, hey, you know, the deal cycle can slow down when it gets into the contracting phase. And it's not really our fault. Like as legal practitioners, we can comment on the legal aspects of the contract, but we're also being asked to be project managers. We're being asked to make sure IT has signed off on security and this exec has signed off on the discount and finance is cool with these payment terms and product has agreed to this unique SLA for this customer, whatever it is. And they're like, none of these are legal terms. They all require a lot of workflow and task management across the business. And so we need tooling to help. And that's actually going to speed up sales deals, which actually ties right back to revenue. So those are the kinds of problems that we solve for these companies on the sell side. On the buy side, we solve, again, CFOs tell us things like, hey, we've been signing up to a whole bunch of SaaS agreements. You know, last quarter, we found two that auto-renewed that were pretty hefty. They were purchased by a previous manager of this department who's now left. And gosh, it stinks to have to, you know, pay a bunch of money mm. to get out of those contracts. And we're like, hey, Lexion can read all of your contracts. We use our proprietary AI to extract renewal dates, expiration dates, set up reminders automatically. So all of that's taken care of for you and you're not going to miss those kinds of things. So that's another kind of value prop we offer there. So that's how we help businesses today. And interesting. Yeah. I love it. Is there a certain size company or a certain sector that you're focused on and, and how 
was that day one and how has that changed over time? Yeah, I like a lot of like a lot of startups, you start, you know, in our case, we did not, we started serving, well, I want to say, I want to say Aptio was actually our first customer, our first big paying customer, and or actually our first customer period. And they, you know, they're they're a fairly large organization. They just got acquired by a private equity firm. Again, congratulations to that team, which is amazing. And so they were one of our larger customers. I'd say our sweet spot customer today is a company that has somewhere between 500 up to 5,000 employees. Like we actually serve a fairly wide range of businesses. They will have a legal team that ranges from one or two people up to, you know, 30 to 50 people. And they are supporting either the sales org, the procurement org, or sometimes even both. And so, you know, our platform can come in and serve them there. So I'd like to describe it as sort of mid-market companies and on the lower end of enterprise businesses. Interesting. And so now, I mean, it's just a crazy time in the world because everyone, you know, you think back and I started when I was recruiting early days, it was like the internet. was becoming mm-hmm. huge. And now all of a sudden, everybody's talking about generative AI and you guys are in the mm-hmm. AI space. You're like, are. you're doing you're doing the thing that creates the superpower human. I mean, if anybody's not using Lexion, they're behind their competitors because they're moving, <laughs> they're moving slower, right? <laughs> That's right. They're moving much slower. And so how has this kind of buzz around gen AI impacted your day-to-day or how you're thinking about the future of Lexion? It is transformative for Lexion. I believe time will show that it's going to be transformative for many branches of the practice of law. So just a little bit of context. We started this company at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence, and we really started it based on technology that we had built that would allow us to very accurately, very quickly be able to build high-quality algorithms, we call them models, that can extract information from contracts. So our first proof of concept was with Wilson Sonsini, and one of the, the biggest law firms here on the West Coast. They're lawyers to lots of major tech companies. And Wilson Sonsini came to us and said, hey, I'm going to give you a whole bunch of these, these venture financing documents, and I need you to extract the following bits of venture deal terms from them. And we were able to rapidly build models and turn around the project in the, in the span of a week. And that really kind of blew them away and said, oh my God, this is really cool. And, and, and that's when- How long started... would it typically take, Gaurav? So- like, you say a week, would it typically be like months? Oh yeah, like six months or so. I mean, you know, you would need yeah. to hire a team of annotators. You would need them to go and annotate documents. So you have ground truth. Here's the correct answer machine learning algorithm. And then you would need to tinker with a variety of different algorithms, a whole pipeline to turn your documents into text, feed them into the algorithms, train these models, repeat until they get good. And then you'd be like, cool, we've got some models. And we were you know, using our technology stack, able to do all this in the span of a week. So that was the groundbreaking tech. And we were at the time looking to apply it to a variety of different fields. And we weren't sure what path the company is going to take. Are we going to productize this core NLP technology and go sell it to a bunch of data scientists? Or were we going to, as we have done, build an application on top of it and go take it to end application users, which I personally love even more because 
I think the opportunity there is much larger. It gives us more surface area of things we can do and more creativity and how we can apply this, this great tech. And you feel the impact right away because you're a business person. You're, you've right. got the, the computer science background, you're an engineer, but you're, you're business minded. And so you understand that this is a real problem that you're solving. That's, that's exactly yeah. right. In fact, I would try to tell the story of selling the NLP tool. I was like, okay, so let me see how this is going to work. We're going to spend months selling to some NLP scientists at a big bank or company because only the big banks or companies can afford it. Then they're going to spend months using our tool to build something useful and then the business is going to get value. I was like, whoa, that's, that's way too long for yeah. ROI. Like, yeah. no, yeah. ROI has to be faster. Right. So, so we built Lexion and, you know, we hired amazing people from our network. Imad Elwani comes from Microsoft Research. He's my co-founder and CTO. And, and Imad tapped into his network. We tapped, I tapped into mine. We, we brought in amazing engineers and machine learning practitioners who had worked at Google, at Facebook, at Microsoft, at, at the Allen Institute for AI. So we built a strong machine learning team. And from the, from the get-go, you know, we've published papers in amazing academic journals that are publicly available on our website. We've done talks. We've talked about the technology because we've been very optimistic about it from what it can, it can do. At the same time, we brought on Jessica Wynn, our chief legal officer, really early on in the company, which is wild. Like, most companies won't hire a lawyer full-time till they're, I don't know, 75, 100 people. We did it when we were 10. And we did it because Jessica is not just a lawyer. She is an incredible influencer, marketer, voice of the customer, salesperson. She was really our GTM engine in the early days, as well as like our number one user and product and you know, product feedback person. So she taught us, hey guys, I love how much you you like geeking out about this technology, but let's keep the nerd talk to the background because I, as a lawyer, don't care. I'm like, right. I am super busy. Give me the it's net a- net of how it's going to save me. Give me the net net. Tell me, like, can you just get to like how this is going to help me? Oh, you're going to read yeah. all my contracts and give me this? Oh, that's interesting. Oh, a financing is coming up. I have to fill out disclosure schedules. You're going to make that a lot easier. Oh, that, that's cool. Oh, you're going to now use generative AI. So coming to your question on Gen AI, you know, you're now going to use Gen AI to act as a co-pilot and review the contract for me and so that I don't have to do it from scratch. And okay, that's interesting. Like now you're going to- You're turning really... her now into like a, a superpower. Oh my gosh. She, a, she yeah. is a superpower. I would say Lexion just figured out how to how to harness <laughs> the superpower. And yeah, she sounds incredible. Your journey's- at Lexion alone has included tons of significant recognition. I read that you were recognized as the most promising AI legal tech startup, which does not surprise me. But what do you think specifically sets you apart from Mm -hmm. any competition? Like, what are you doing that's different? Yes. This is a very pertinent question in our industry because this is the most red ocean of red ocean markets. We have a lot of competition. We have companies that are, I don't love using the word legacy companies. They're great businesses, but they've been around for a long time. Companies like, you know, DocuSign that are dominant in the space. We have a whole range of companies that were spawned in the 2015, 2014s. So there's a lot of different products on the market for our customers to choose from. Despite that, we we have been winning a lot of great business and we're able to raise a fantastic series B in the hardest fundraising climate in the last decade, because there's some things that really stand out for customers. 
the number one thing that we pride ourselves on is incredibly fast time to ROI. And you know, you're thinking, well, well, of course, you're buying a product. You get it, you better get value from it. But in our industry, failure to implement is endemic. It's so bad mm -hmm. that Gartner has even written an article where the headline is, you know, good news, legal in-house legal teams will triple their tech budgets in the next few years. Bad news, they're only going to realize 30% of the value of their contract systems that they implement. So a 70% failure rate. And when you read the article, it's what you'd expect. It's like, you know, you've got these super busy teams, these legal teams, they suddenly have to project manage this enterprise-wide deployment. They have to gather requirements. Then the consultant will implement it over the next few weeks. They have to acceptance test and make sure it works and work out the details. Then there's training and change management in the company. And then you get success. And again, it's mm. one of those stories where I'm like, oh my God, like that just sounds terrible. We need to show value a lot faster. And so we've built Lexion in a way that the day companies buy Lexion, they start using it. One of the unique things we do is we work with your IT team to change legal at your company.com to point to Lexion. So imagine, Ooh, love that. imagine all these emails coming into you. Hey, I have this end of quarter deal. Hey, I want to buy this thing. And then, hey, where's my deal? Where's the thing? Where's the da-da-da? You're like, immediately you get visibility. Everything's on a dashboard. Everyone can see what's going on. The latest document is right there. Has this gone through IT approval? Just check. It's right there. You can see it. And, and so that is one way we get you started right away. And then we layer on value when you're ready. Do you want to get an approval? Well, there's a box right there that says get approval. And you just type in an email or a department name and we'll do it for you. Great. We'll send an email to that person. They don't even need to know Lexion exists. They're just getting an email like they would have before with the contract attached. Cool. And oh, wait, hold on. Do you always get this, this approval? Do you want to automate it? Well, there's a button to automate it. And you can just say anytime the deal value is more than hundred grand, make sure this person gets to take a look at it and signs off. Cool. I wanted to actually keep talking about more, more ways that we differentiate. There's really two big things. One is the fast time to ROI. And, and we achieve that by giving you incremental value over time, make it complex when you're ready, but it's useful right now. And by making it so it works the way you do, it works in email, it works in Slack, it works in Salesforce. You don't have to train everybody to do something new. So that's, that's how we get to fast ROI. And we are so committed to it that we are rolling out an implementation guarantee. We're the only company in the space that will give you all your money back in 60 days if you don't meet you know, this level of implementation that we provide. And we, we've done this so many times that we're now just making it official and saying, we'll just put it in all our contracts. So I think um, that's super smart because you're like, you're standing by what you're already seeing is... Yes. a potential friction point for other companies where it's like, if, if this is what the Gartner report's saying, that it's this obvious, and like, if this is a huge differentiator for you, then a hundred percent, that makes sense. That's really yeah. smart. Yeah, no, thank you. It's run towards the grenade. So that's one. And the second one is our, our huge investment in AI and doing it in a way that is really practice, practical and yields value for our end users. So you know, generative AI is new. We've been using deep learning, which it's funny to call that old because it's, you know, half a decade old technology, really. And uh, we, we've been using that to understand documents, to parse them, to answer the kinds of logo use questions or, hey, there's a new data privacy law in California. What do we do? Or, hey, there's a pandemic. Like, what? where can we get some relief from our suppliers and paying our bills? So we help with all that. With Gen AI, we have really 
started to see a whole new vista of opportunity to help companies, not just their legal teams, but their other, other teams. I think I alluded to earlier on the call, the the assistants that we're building that live right inside of Word and help lawyers redline and negotiate contracts. But this is just the beginning. I think there is so much that is going that can be done in this this industry. You know, things like, ah, my customer support person is bugging email, ask bugging legal over email asking, hey, I just want to confirm, is this customer auto-renewing? And is this the price cap? Am I reading this correctly? Those are the kinds of questions that you could self-serve with Gen AI features. Or maybe somebody's emailing into legal and they're like, oh, hey, you know, good news. We're going to have a kid. I was just wondering what's the paternity or maternity policy. And it's the kind of thing where you could have AI read that email, understand what they're asking, and immediately shoot them back the relevant portion of the employee handbook. Again, taking a whole bunch of work off of these teams that they're doing today. We were talking about RFPs earlier on. We have a, because what we found is contracts just aren't about legal. We find that IT teams, finance teams, sales ops, procurement teams are all in our system. They're putting all sorts of work through our system, including security questionnaires and RFPs. And increasingly they're asking us, could you use some of that same assistance technology that you have for re reviewing contracts to automatically fill out our RFPs? And that is a, a wonderful avenue of research and one that we you know, think we can actually deliver on. So those are really the two big areas that really set us apart. Fast time to ROI, backed by an implementation guarantee, and real practical use of AI that speeds up actual work that our, our customers do. Yeah. Wow. I am super blown away. So do you have a huge sales team? And when you're building out your teams, how do you mm -hmm. ensure that there's you know, diversity and that you're working super collaboratively together and that everybody feels kind of empowered to do their best work there. So we are, so we are, you know, at this phase in the business, we are growing out our sales organization. And as part of that, we just brought on a new sales leader, Cassie Pless. She used to be at Outreach and it's, it's really exciting having her on board at this phase of our company as we sort of change how we build out our sales function, it's really important to have somebody who's kind of seen the movie at a top tier company and can really bring some of those best practices to us. So that's been really great. In terms of, you know, diversity, I, I have not been, it has not been like a clear mandate that we should be hiring diverse candidates or, or women. But despite that, Lexion is, I'm, about 50% female. I think we had an article talking about how we're 51% in our engineering mm -hmm. team a few months ago. Yes, We've hired more people. So I don't know if we've maintained that ratio, but we've hired more women too. So hopefully we have. I think we did some things right in the early days in setting the culture of who we hire. And it's, it's allowed us to continue to hire a diverse talent pool. I look at a lot of the diversity stuff from a perspective of, I mean, it's a great opportunity. If you're a if you're a if you're the leader of a business and you have a talent pool out there to choose from why wouldn't you want that talent pool to be as big as possible it Absolutely. you know and so you can attract amazing incredible candidates and if they mm -hmm. feel great and inspired to work in your company everybody wins so 100% in hiring are there are there certain attributes that you look for like would you say like ooh that's that's the kind of person I'm very drawn to. It's yeah. not necessarily just you, but like culturally our leadership team. These are the types of attributes we like. 
Yeah. One, before I answer that, just one thing on being intentional about hiring, I am more intentional. I do think about it more on the exec hiring. So, you know, we, we were looking to, there were two exec roles we were looking to fill. One was our sales leader and one's our finance leader. And I, I didn't want to end up just hiring. I was like, oh, it's so easy to just end up hiring two dudes to do this. You know, can we try to be a little bit more conscious and see who are the candidates out there? So I definitely took that a little bit into account when we did this and we were able to hire Cassie. But I I don't let that, we can't let that drive the decision. At the end of the day, we are in a capitalist system. I am fundamentally beholden to my shareholders. I need to make whatever is the right decision that's going to get the company to success. And so first and foremost, I look for people who are going to be great at the job, which obviously how you assess them differs based on their seniority and, and kind of their experience. But the things that I like to look for, one of them is urgency slash biased action. Like I think feel yes. like, yeah, I feel like that high sense of urgency is something that I find ends up being a pretty good predictor of long-term success. And yes. a good way to measure it is what does this person do in their first week or their first two weeks? Sure, there's 30, 60, 90 day plans, but what do they actually do? And you can really end up seeing a lot by how much how much they're able to produce and get done as soon as they join your company. So urgency and biased action is something I look for. I want people that are going to take full ownership. Like you have the authority, you have the responsibility, you get the accolades, please go do it. But I also want people that are going to be incredibly transparent and open with what's going on. Like Ah, I'm doing this. It's just not working. It, and look, let's just look at the numbers. And I tried this and it sucked. Like I need help or, Hey, you know, I knew I told you I was going to do this. I didn't do it. And I should have, I had a bad week or I tried and I failed. And then I got stuck. Cool. Like, great. No problem. Like, let's figure it out. The sooner you can come to me or to your teammates with these open problems, the easier we can all work it out. Everybody has bad yeah. days, things like it's that. Like real accountability. I like that. Yeah. So I, I want people that have high urgency, that are going to take full ownership, that are going to be highly transparent in what they're doing, what the milestones are, how it's coming along. I like that. And how about you? Like, how do you personally define success for yourself? And how has that changed, I guess, over time? Um, mm -hmm. You're you're still young. I feel like an old, old. I'm like <laughs> kind of tripping out. You've done a lot already. I'm like, uh oh, I gotta get, I gotta snap. Oh my gosh, go. no, not at all. Are you kidding me? Fuel is such an amazing. Like, company. do you feel successful now, or do you feel like uh -oh, I do? Won't yeah, feel that until this happens. I do feel successful now, and in general, I've felt pretty pretty happy and content with, you know, where I've been in life through this. I've I've had a lot to be thankful for there is still so much more to be done, but that doesn't mean I can't feel content with where I am. I'm very excited and optimistic about what we can, what we can do and build the technology. Like I'm a builder at heart and I love to build. And I think there is just so much we can do with this business alone, with what we're doing with Lexion. The market is so huge. The opportunity ahead of us is so incredible. We have an amazing team. We have wonderful, wonderful customers that teach us so much about their industry and how to be better. That really gets me excited. So while I, I don't want it to sound like I'm complacent, like, yeah, I'm content, pretty successful, cool, you know, chill out. It's really not that. It's, it's 
I don't have any sort of fear about, oh gosh, I'm not doing enough. Should we do more? I'm like, well, the future is so bright. Let's just, let's just run towards the future. And that's kind of how I think about it. Ultimate success to me is like, it, it really is about the relationships in my life more than anything else. And I'd say, you know, the biggest challenge of, of building businesses is you are time constrained and mm-hmm. you don't get to spend mm-hmm. as much time, especially when you have family all over the world and friends all over the world. It's, it's hard to, to make those in-person connections. I'm terrible over phone, Slack and, and email. I'm very much an in-person type type person. And so I'd say that that to me is one area where I, I wish I was more successful. That makes sense. And that's super in, insightful. A lot of people aren't even aware, right? They're just kind of mowing through and going through life. And I like that you're giving it thought. Is there, do you give thought on like a deeper level of some sort of like legacy that you would like to leave as far in terms of the business world and also within like your personal sphere of your community or your family? I, I think, you know, I think about it a lot from the context of my son. And from that perspective, I think the thing I'd like to impart on him and, you know, any other young people that I touch is there's a lot you can do if you just put your head down and get to it. The the thing we use at home a lot is how do you climb a mountain one step at a time? Like, that's it. Just put, you know, just keep climbing, keep doing it. And that you have a lot of personal agency in your life to affect change and do amazing things. And and that it's really, it's really in the grasp of, of all of us that have the, the luck and fortune to have a roof over heads and have a good education. Like those, those are huge advantages that you can use and do this. And people, even without those advantages, succeed and do these amazing things. So this, this concept that you can do it on your own, you can impact significant change and be independent. I, that's, I can that's hear your dad. I, I can hear your dad's voice in there a little bit. I love it. He sounds, he sounds, your your family sounds incredible. My final question for you, and thank you for your generous time. Like this has been so fun is what fuels you? Ooh, I go back to making video games for my friends as a kid. And what fueled me was watching the delight on their faces and then them turning around being like, cool. When's the next chapter coming out? Like more. (laughs) It is literally that I am, I'm, I am, I mentioned I'm a builder at heart, which might get conflated with sort of the traditional engineer builder at heart, where the traditional engineer builder I think of as someone who loves building for building's sake. They're like, I don't care if anyone sees my building or uses it or whatever thing, my project, I built it and it's beautiful. I've got satisfaction. No, for me, it's I've built it, someone's used it and they love it and they're hooked. That is is the dopamine hit that I crave. And it's why I love building products. And it's why... You know, a big part of our culture at our company is massive customer obsession. Cause I'm like, the only way you're going to find how to make someone happy is if you really understand them and what makes them tick. So yeah, not obsessed with what their day-to-day is like and what they're doing. How are you going to deliver something that delights them? And, and that's, that's what gets me going. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You.